This New America NYC event took place on June 30th, 2015, and is titled Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war, and features Peter Warren Singer, August Cole, and Amy Davidson. This was a really fun book to read. Um, and, you know, the posters around the room, everybody can look at some of the ideas and some of the scenarios in the book. But one thing that the posters suggest is that this is a book in which a war goes on long enough to have a little bit of a culture attached to it with these kind of propaganda posters. And I guess that's my first question and what I think is the biggest what if of this book. Um, it's, it's a novel with the subtitle, um, A Novel of the Next World War. And for a long time, I think we all assumed that any novel like that would have a very brief period of warfare, maybe a few seconds, and the novel would be about a few guys on an island somewhere in a radioactive wasteland. You have instead a conventional war, though it has unconventional elements. How? I guess my question is, how did we get so lucky uh, that this is the kind of war that people are strategizing about and envisioning? I'll jump in. And first, thanks for everybody for coming out. It's, it's really exciting for us to be able to talk about this book. It's been a, a three and a half year journey for us to get to this stage. So the book is a um, novel in the vein of a techno thriller, echoing back to some of the early Tom Clancy, like Red Storm Rising. Or if you're a military wonk, there was a book called uh, The Third World War by Sir John Hackett. And both of them took the real world plans that the nations of the last Cold War were making to potentially um, fight if the Cold War ever turned hot, and they interacted with them in a fictional setting. We tried to do the same, and the reality is that um, both the United States and China and Russia are, we would argue, entering into a, a kind of brewing Cold War of the 21st century, and there's a risk that it could turn hot for any, any number of reasons. It could be an accidental start to um, warships trading paint over a reef uh, or an artificial island to um, a deliberate choice. But what's interesting and maybe sets up this issue of the duration is those battle plans, one is they, they plan for it to be conventional. They worry that it could, could get to the next, but they plan for it to be conventional. But they also tend to use words like that it would be short and sharp and always work out for their side. And that's not just for the military leaders and the politicians. We're even seeing those attitudes on the public side. There was a recent poll of 74% um, of Chinese think their nation would win in a war against the United States. And you could find similar kind of things on our side. And the point is that this sets us up for a very risky world, and we play with that in the book. You know, there, there's a, a consensus during the Cold War that a nuclear conflict is not winnable, that it results in a handful of people surviving on an island or in a cave. That was a big part of the popular literature in the 80s. Uh, you know, even books like David Brin's Postman took us into what post-apocalyptic life might be like. I think now there is a sense that warfare, big wars in the 21st century are winnable, and that's dangerous because there are still extreme costs that you can impose on one country or another, and those may be in the cyber realm and the space realm, that, that the escalation to a nuclear threshold, of course, is real, but the thinking in many military circles is that it will be short and sharp, uh, that you could have a conflict that, that results in a... And, and I think what a lot of military planners would consider victory. And that's true in China or the US. And that at the crucial moment, 
people will back away from the nuclear option. Well, there's interesting that, that August used an important word that connects to that, that differentiates the next war from both the Cold War and the actual world wars that we fought, and it's cyber. And that both creates a, a new domain that we might battle in. It creates, um, the difference back then is that uh, the president knew that our communication networks and the Soviets as well knew that their order would be given and would be received as opposed to in the world of hacking, you may not, if someone else is in your networks, you may not know if your message goes through. Uh, there's also a final part of it that sings back to that um, sense of it being short or sharp, is it also the, the military's plan for it to be contained geographically contained, also chronologically contained, geographically contained only in the, the, the Straits of Taiwan or in the, the Baltics. But the reality is when you start talking about things playing out in cyberspace or outer space, that doesn't respect geographic boundaries. So it'd be the first war that would play out in cyberspace and outer space, which is both big for humanity, but also gives us a lot of fun things to play within a fiction. Let's start just setting up the fiction. I don't want to give away too much of the plot or too many spoilers, but just to start with who the protagonists are. The US, obviously, and the, this book is set in the near future, and the US, I would say, is recognizably what it is now in terms of its government structure, a little more, a little more obsessed with con consumer culture. But China, the other, you know, protagonist is is not even called China. It's called the Directorate. So, what is what is this Directorate? It sounds sort of French revolutionary. We we wanted to really play with the idea that the world uh, in the future will not be the world that we see today. And I think China is a country that proves that year after year, decade after decade. Defense spending is an example. In the '90s, they would spend say 10 billion dollars a year. Now they spend 150 billion officially, probably more. With the, with the regime that we imagine in China, we see a lot of the core concerns that the Communist Party has, like stability, uh, like prosperity being addressed in a totally different political structure, and one that is really putting that into the past and looking at market efficiency, looking at the technological embrace that's happening in many uh, corners over there, and really making that a, that's the official you know doctrine and, and kind of mantra of the of that of this regime. But it's also twinned with military might. You know, as China's army becomes more powerful, as it's Growing GDP can fund an ever larger military with more capability, with actual aircraft carriers, with stealthy fighters that are copied from ours but work quite well. I think you will see a very different relationship between not only the military and the government, but the military and the people. Maybe, maybe one way to put it is that the, the world that we see today is definitely not going to be the world tomorrow. But also, what we think about the world today is not the case. So, you know, we have a, a vision of China, communist China. Well, you know, China produced over 300 billionaires in the last couple years. Or uh, this year, on the Chinese stock market, defense company shares were being sold so rapidly they had to pause trading. Now pull back and think about that for a minute. That's not you know Mao's China. But so what we play with in the book is um, there's a debate in the real world of uh, either the argument is China will stay the same, the Communist Party will always be there, or there's been a lot of uh, people, analysts, arguing that, no, 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 the Communist Party is on its last legs because of these changes. But then they always lash it up to a discussion of democracy. And as August put out, you know, there's another word that's very important in both Chinese history, but um, politics and its stability. And so the directorate, um, which is the protagonist in this book, is basically a marrying up of the confident, 
successful business elite, the new generation of business elite with a more professional, confident, and global-looking military. And what's fascinating, again, of you know, pace of events is you can go read the Chinese military doctrine that came in um, after we turned in the draft of the book to our editor, Eamon, who's back there, but basically uh, just um, essentially reinforced everything. You can go read and how it kind of redefined the outlook of China's military to be more global, but also more sea and air air oriented. And there's good reason for that. When so much of China's economy is dependent on foreign trade, they have a new relationship with sea power, for example, to guarantee the free access of goods globally. Right now, there is a lot of what people call free riding, meaning the US Navy's control and stability in the Pacific is something that China benefits from. That's certainly true. But at a point, it will tip. And China will say, we want to be the ones who are the guarantors of that security. We have the economy that requires it, and we have the military that can do it. I should say that you know we've mentioned a lot of the geo geopolitical players, but this novel has a lot of um, individuals who kind of, for example, there's a Chinese hacker who, a young woman who learned software partly because she had to stay indoors throughout her childhood because of pollution-related illnesses. So talk about some of those those. Chinese characters in particular who populate well, so the, the novel. The, the, the methodology for building the, the book, the world of it, combined everything from you know, classic nonfiction research. So again, it's, it's a novel, but with 400 endnotes. So everything from DARPA contract announcements to um, new Chinese military drones that have uh, surfaced on um, certain of their uh, information sites to, you know, that's, that's kind of the documentation side. But we also wanted to add flesh to it. And the flesh to it is the characters. And, but the characters are based off of meetings with real world people who, you know, some of them are the expected players in a, in a potential World War III, you know, a US Navy captain or a fighter jet pilot or a Chinese general. Um, but our argument again is that there'll be echoes of a World War II, but they'll also be players that didn't exist back then. So one is, for example, when you look at the, the internet, We've got, we're building up, you know, Cyber Command on our side. I mean, pull back, actually, a remarkable data point came in um, yesterday. Cyber Command is spending $2 billion just on construction at Fort Meade. So just construction. I mean, this is, so if you don't think cyber war is the future, your tax money is going towards something interesting. Um, so you have that on, the, on, on, on our official military. You've got the Chinese um, third uh, department, which if you're not familiar with them, they're basically the people who uh, are allegedly behind the hack of everything from um, the New York Times to uh, 18 million Americans' um, uh, social security numbers and the like. But besides these official groups, you've got these quasi or non-state actors that range from the university-affiliated cyber militia that that character is a part of to um, non-state actors uh, that really don't fit in those old buckets like Anonymous. And um, you know, Anonymous is unlikely to affiliate, so to speak, with any power, but I have serious doubts it's gonna sit out a battle playing out on this domain that it's basically kind of pledged to protect. Mm -hmm. Now, that's interesting. You know, you're talking about the construction at Fort Meade. There's a lot of cyber war in this book, broadly defined. Um, and part of it is hackers, part of it is on networks. But part of it is that you have a scene of kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat for control of a space station. How much of cyber war is also space war? 
and how prepared are we for that aspect of it? Do we need more um, fighting astronauts to keep to keep us safe? I, I think you can just watch Moonraker and base all your policy off that. The uh, you know the the uh, didn't like that answer. The uh, you know the, the choice to not to get too spoilery here, but the choice to introduce some classic elements of warfare, like hand-to-hand -hand combat in a very high-tech context was, was deliberate. Because I think when we think about space warfare and cyber warfare as domains, and whether or not they are new and require wholly different ways of thinking and operating, of course they do, but there are truisms there about control, about what it means to actually seize something in the physical sense that still matter in the, in the domain. So to answer the question, uh, you know, yes, they are intertwined. I mean, the US military you know, sends an enormous volume of its traffic over uh, commercial networks that are on satellites in space. So you can't not plan to confront the US military without targeting those civilian networks in space. Maybe build on that. Um, so 80% of our communications goes over uh, space. And um, so it would turn that likely into a battleground. And again, both the US, China, Russia are all working on um, uh, space weapons programs. We just invested $5 billion in it in this year's budget to China tested out um, anti-satellite missiles to Russia has a rumored, um, it, it's called the Istrabel Sputnikov, which is basically a kamikaze satellite program. So everything I just said sounds like science fiction and it's all pulled from the real world. So now we go to the, the part about, well, you said, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat. Actually, that scene was pulled, um, one, you know, we love our sci-fi, but it was actually pulled from conversations with um, Harvard scientists on how, what is the, the technology and the actual true-to-life physics and the like of what you would do, again, spoilery alert, if you wanted to seize a manned space station but keep it in being. Um, one of the other things that, the, that, you know, characters that's in that scene that's, again, real but fun is, um, we have these uh, remarkably important and flamboyant billionaires who are wildly interested in space. What are they gonna do if a conflict breaks out? Again, I have serious doubts they're gonna sit it out, and so we had a lot of fun with that. That, that is, the billionaires are, are, I have to say, fun, and there's more than one of them. Um, and I guess this goes back to the question of where cyber war is fought. One of your Silicon Valley characters is kind of trying to do his part from kind of a hangar in California with a lot of computer setup. And the other, another is grabbing a rocket. So is cyber You're war- really spoilery in everything. <laughs> um, I'm not saying who won, um, but, but this is the basic, one of the questions about cyber war, we have an image of it as being something that's, that's fought in a purely virtual way. Um, although it has real world effects, obviously, but there's an image of someone somewhere on a keyboard and then everything goes out. But you kind of make the point that this is also about physical assets and actual military, an actual battlefield that's not virtual as this well. This is something that Pete's often said is that you know, warfare is ultimately a human endeavor. And the technology that we employ in its execution you know, changes from decade to decade or even century to century. Uh, and cyber is part of that evolution in modern warfare, but it's not, it's not an end state itself. But the, the, it points to how there's a discussion right now in the news and in politics of, you know, we've seen all of this hacking going on, uh, again, whether it's OPM um, or companies or whatever. And you see uh, 
you know, after the, the OPM breach, the Office of Personal Management, the, the federal data files, everything from USA Today to National Review, so kind of a partisan, you know, journal, to, you know, serious wonk places like Federal Computer Weekly, they all said something to the effect that we're at cyber war right now, this is our cyber Pearl Harbor. And, you know, our contention using the fiction of the book, but drawn from the real world, is you know, to pull from that, that great strategic thinker, Bachman Turner, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, cyber war is different than stealing information. It's actually making use of that information, including, if you get access, changing the information to cause physical impact on the world. And again, this isn't theoretic. We did this with this wicked little weapon we called Stuxnet, which was a, a cyber weapon we deployed against um, Iran to sabotage their nuclear research. August and I, uh, you know, one of the research parts of this was we actually helped organize war games for the U.S. military. And one of the war games looked at how um, the same software that Stuxnet goes after that we created, it's called SCADA. SCADA is in everything from traffic lights to the engine room of every US Navy warship. So in the war game, basically the officers put the um, opposing force on what they jokingly called the carnival cruise line experience. Basically, you don't take out the enemy ship with a missile. If you shut down the engine room, you have the same effect. And so that's the big difference here of a, of a cyber war, uh, the physical side of it, causing physical effect in the real world. And that, of course, raises the stakes totally. There's a connection, too. You know, so at the Office of Personnel Management, which is a place that really never makes headlines, you have so much paperwork that's been digitized. And suddenly, it's the target of hackers from China. Well, why would they want that? What good is a bunch of paperwork from the US government's bureaucracy, which, as we know, is big? Well, the reason has to do with what this would be used for in wartime. So one of the most effective ways that Chinese hackers have been targeting, say, US energy networks, particularly in the gas sector, has been to use what's called a spear phishing attack. An official looking email is used to extract a password or some other valuable information that can be used to get network access. That's the kind of information that they have just mined. And not only that, there were uh, SF-86, which again is a really important bureaucracy nomenclature for those in the government because that's part of the deep dive review into your darkest secrets for security clearance. That information in the hands of an intelligence operator is extremely useful for not only the basics of blackmail or exploitation, but also building uh, the sort of profile that you can use to target somebody for one of these attacks. That's not a problem necessarily today or tomorrow or maybe even next year, but in five or 10 years, were you to be in a ghost fleet-like situation, those would be the tools with which a kind of surprise attack had happened that we've never seen before. And everything that August just laid out is the easy part of the problem because you move from software to hardware hacking, which is one of the things we play in the book. Hardware hacking is, you know, so one is software is basically someone trying to get into the network itself from the outside. Hardware hacking is the fact that your, your chips, your equipment, is made by someone else, designed by someone else, so the vulnerabilities are literally baked into the equipment itself. And, um, you know, essentially the, the real world problem set of this, and oh, by the way, we, as Edward Snowden disclosed, have done this to others. So we have to assume you know, someone might just be smart enough to do it against us. But the, the um, F-35, for example, our, our uh, next jet fighter, over 80% of the microchips in it are made and designed in China and Taiwan. 
What does that mean? Well, it raises very interesting issues for your supply chain in a war against the nation that the jet fighter is supposed to fly against. But also, if you're a sci-fi fan, it basically offers up the opportunities for the um, pilot episode of Battlestar Galactica. It's, it's a kill switch opportunity. You know, that's interesting because um, you guys, I think, are pretty, pretty brutal in the book on the subject of um, military contractors and their standards and their choices. Um, at the same time, we mentioned the billionaires, and I won't get into it, but there's a, a plot twist involving Walmart. Um, what do you think in a putative war is the, the relationship between private industry and the government? What's that going to look like? And are, are we doing it right now? How, how might it uh, evolve in a crisis? Well, so it's funny, again, I'm going to pick on Eamon in the back because it illustrates this back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. So one of the scenes, um, the opening to it is basically a Marine pilot and his contractor crew chief, and he's complaining about the fact that the gun doesn't work on the plane anymore. And if you're in our community, people immediately go, oh, that's F-35 problems. And that's actually playing out is that we've committed to buy a plane that in the real world, the gun not going to be workable because of software problems for the next five years. I'm smiling because we didn't have the heart to tell Eamon that in the real world, the bombs don't fit in the bomb bay door of a $1.5 trillion airplane project. That's too weird to put in a fiction story. Um, so, you know, there's some issues there and in, in, in kind of how we're moving forward. But the, the, the bigger issue is to move beyond just the defense contracting world. So look at these echoes of, of World War II. If we truly had a war in which we needed to mobilize the broader parts of American society, it's not Detroit anymore that would be the arsenal of democracy. It'd be the Silicon Valleys. It'd be Bentonville, Arkansas. But also a thing that's different is that um, we have multinational corporations now. And they would have an equal dilemma that we play with in the book of figuring out, do they go with the founding nationality of the company, the physical location of its headquarters, or where all its franchises are, or the owners of the company that might be elsewhere. And that's a, a real debate that has played out in the Snowden affair, but would get even more controversial in an actual conflict. You know, there's a question of where does innovation come from right now? And I think that's something we play with in the book. Uh, you know, the ability to take a peacetime economy, a peacetime relationship between government, between industry and Congress that produces you know, weapons overruns today. Well, that's bad for taxpayers like us, but in wartime, that's a real problem. If it takes you 20 years to field a frontline aircraft and your war is underway, you have to come up with a new model and a new way of working. So that creates opportunities for new actors, people who are super empowered individuals. You know, that's often used in a pejorative or a negative sense. Somebody like, like Snowden, for example, could fit into that category or a, a terrorist mastermind, but it also can have a positive connotation too because there are people in this country that are extremely patriotic, extremely innovative, well-capitalized for that matter. If there are any of you in the room, welcome. And, and, and have the ability to do meaningful things in times of crisis, positive things. So the cynicism that we often see in Washington around the conventional relationships with the Iron Triangle, you know, those are important themes and things to always be mindful of and watchful of as citizens and as, as you know, people in the military will say, or even in the industry itself. But at the same time, I think we have to also consider where the positive opportunity is to harness that, and that's something we try to showcase in the book. You know, the, 
I'm going to spoil her a little bit here, but one, one of our uh, characters that works out of a you know, former hangar at Moffett Field, well, that's actually where the Pentagon right now wants to set up its innovation office to somehow harvest the fairy dust that's in Silicon Valley so they can bring some of that innovation back into the Beltway. And uh, it's a well-intentioned effort, but I think the kind of actors that may be doing that aren't the necessarily the official ones. So just to pick up on that question of, of partnership and multinationals, um, one of the premises of the book, although it's, as you say, not constrained geographically in terms of going into space, outer space and cyberspace, but the war that you lay out is limited and not an entirely worldly, worldwide war. Um, because our allies all abandon us, or almost all abandon us. Um, most NATO fall, you know, NATO's not there. Um, our real allies, who we've supposedly, you know, counted on and allowed to count on us, aren't there. Um, talk about that a little bit. I, I, is, where's where's the where's the love? Um, you know, <laughs> um, why why is that such a failure? Or, in a strange sense, um, is it kind of a, a positive thing, for, if not for the US in the book, for the world, in that it does keep, you know, it's not like World War I, where everybody's alliances are causing a, a catastrophic es escalation. Um, just talk about, about that a little. I think, it, again, it goes back to that point about the world today not being what many people assume and the world tomorrow being fundamentally different. So uh, as an example, um, just this week, uh, NATO had its ministerial meeting that brought together the leaders. And NATO's talking about how you know, we're potentially entering a new Cold War with Russia. We created uh, a new rapid reaction force. We moved tanks back into Europe. But there was an underlying issue, which um, over the last three years, the defense spending by every European country has gone down. So we are actually at the sort of greatest level of tension, but they're not willing to invest. Actually, only five out of the roughly 30 NATO members have even met the minimal target, the 2% target of defense spending. One's us, another is Greece, and the only reason they met that is because of the GDP went down. So there's some, some math games there. So, so you got that. Um, equally, when you kind of tear apart what's playing out in uh, East Asia, you have interesting things like, for example, you know, we're close allies with South Korea, with Japan, but um, actually a vast majority of South Koreans identify Japan as their greatest threat, not China. Actually, even more than North Korea, which is a really interesting. I mean, the point is what we're getting at here. But is I think in the novel, both the Koreans and the Japanese abandon us, right? Don't give things away. Um, uh, but also, you also have to realize that, you know, again, what happens if a war's not going well or if it's perceived as lost? Would you want to pile on and join, particularly your NATO and going, this is playing out in the Pacific? Is this really for me? And again, and that's, this is an active part of current defense questions of, um, you know, if you go around and meet with European military folks and you say, you know, what if something played out in South China Sea? You'd be there, right? And I think for some of the Asian allies, it is a binary choice that to stand up, not against today's 
military in China, but the, the, the military of the late 2020s or early 2030s will be a very different question. It would be akin to standing up to the US military in terms of size and capability. Yeah, I mean, so, so again, move, the, move the, 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 the dial forward. China's Navy is on pace in 2030 to, according to the US Naval War College, not just match us in quality, but have 100 more warships. Whereas Great Britain's, the Royal Navy, for example, will be at its smallest size in multiple centuries, essentially since before Great Britain, Great Britain became a naval power. Um, so, you know, move the trends forward. One of the things that was, that was interesting about the book for us was also while we were writing it, you know, we were playing with the idea of uh, what would be the changes in the EU and, oh, maybe, you know, there'd be this thing like Scotland might have a referendum and then, like, you know, six months later they actually did. Uh, so, you know. Um, so just to pick up also on that about this playing out in the Pacific, um, you make some interesting choices in terms of the crises that impel us to the, to the point where there's a war. There is perhaps not surprisingly something in the Middle East, uh, the Saudi royal family collapses, um, but that's sort of in the background. The more immediate crisis is Indonesia, and you portray Indonesia as, as a failed, collapsed state, and that's kind of the background crisis. Um, how did you, how, why, what was that, why, why poor Indonesia? Why? <laughs> the, the, it was a way to talk about how China relates to its nearer waters, and that its quest for order beyond its own borders will extend to that Pacific community. And to have a, you know, a, a a kind of shattered republic, if you will, of the archipelago that that nation represents seems sort of ripe for that kind of, uh, that kind of a, as a plot device, that kind of status. And so it also let us showcase how ruthless the directorate could be in its quest for, for stability and control in the Pacific, um, not to give anything else away about that. But, but you know, the, the larger theme in the Pacific uh, you know, still remains energy, and that's very much true in our book. And I would say, again, you know, that's Indonesia today. If you dial the time back 20 years, that wouldn't be a preposterous idea. You know, East Timor was essentially a failed state. And if you move the dial 20 years forward, you could see things cyclical. And it's much the same, um, you know, uh, look, if 40 years ago, uh, the Vietnam War had just ended, and now today, what nation in the world is most positive, when you see the polling, is most positive about capitalism and most positive about the United States and the region, it's Vietnam. So if you were back in 1975, that's not the world you would have projected. So the point is that, you know, again, there's, there's certain things that we you know, believe will always be the case that might not be. And, and so some things change, but there's other, other parts where you can project quite easily. And that, what I would say, is you know, the technologic change, technologic shift, is that there's certain things you can go, okay, this is at R&D stage right now, Here's where it will be next, or demographics, which relates back to August's this point is about sort of energy demand. At the core of why it's fun to write a book like this is that you can take closely held assumptions and literally upend them. No allies come to the U.S.'s aid. The status of a political regime that just seems immovable, like the Communist Party. You know, when you when you tell a writer like uh, like me or, or Pete that something can't happen, one of my first reactions is, well, I'm going to go find out a way to make that happen. And that's part of why we have such a rigorous uh, footnoting to the book, 
is to prove to our most skeptical readers that this is real. And that's true, as Pete said, technologically, that yes, lasers are here and available to the US Navy. So are other weapons like the railgun, which is something that, that we, we, we feature in the book as well. Uh, it's, it's just like catnip to a writer to have that kind of a, that kind of a consensus that you can turn on its head. And, and it might not be, you know, we've been having a very geopolitical level debate. That, that, that how could you do X, Y, or Z might be at the micro level. So one of the storylines, for example, follows basically um, she's a killer who's taking advantage of a surfing killer. A, well, she's in Hawaii. Everybody surfs. Um, uh, she's a good surfing, but, a good surfer, bad killer. Yeah. She doesn't kill while surfing. Um, uh, <laughs> we're, we're not spoiling much there. But, but the point um, is that she's a killer who takes advantage of the context of war to carry out her crimes. And it plays with the idea of um, you know, what's right and wrong in this context, and a little bit of also having fun a la, um, there's a John Steinbeck story, but also um, Dexter of should you be cheering for the serial killer or not? But the point of the, what I was getting back to is the idea of she's in a surveillance world. She's in a world where there's massive amounts of overhead surveillance, data collection, DNA identification, all the things that are coming into both counterinsurgency but also policing in our cities. And she's still able to figure workarounds in low-tech ways. And that's, you know, that's kind of the devilish fun that you can have as writers, but it also points to these bigger issues that are happening in, in our surveillance debate, is that a lot of people, you know, there's worries about Big Brother and, and very strong worries about rights, but also there's a question that, you know, it's not going to deliver all the security that you think it is. Well, has our counterinsurgency thinking sort of accounted for all of the technological developments of a, a surveillance society in that way. I mean, a lot of what's happened in the counterinsurgency realm has been in countries where there isn't that kind of um, pervasive technology. And how, how what's- Well, well the, the technology that, that is being used in, in that city is actually technology that we've already deployed into Baghdad. So an example would be um, Gorgon Stare, which is a, a surveillance, it's a drone, um, it's, it's a take a predator drone, but they used to have one camera that would look down and track one target. It actually allows you to do wide area surveillance of a city and simultaneously track 92 targets at once. So it's like being able to find 92 Waldos out of a crowd. Um, that's a real technology. Or the rapid DNA identification that, that features in the book, that's actually a technology that was originally created for US Special Operations Forces. We used it in the bin Laden raid. It's now making its way to police forces. And so, you know, again, it's, it's tools that, that are real, that are being applied over. Um, but the bigger point of, the, of that, that storyline is it also plays with debates that we're having in counterinsurgency today about everything from, you know, do you win hearts and minds or do, you know, does high value target strike play out? We're just flipping the script. And um, people have really reacted well to that, both uh, special operations uh, folks that, that we've met with, um, but also, you know, there's, a, there's again a sci-fi element of that of, you know, flipping the script and how would it be if you were on the other side? I think there was one poster, I don't know if we have it here, that was I think a version of that poster that's defaced by the insurgents. Um, that's right. That's so, so the poster, the 4950, and for those listening, you can't see it, but it's the number 49 uh, above the number 50 as if it were a, uh, with a greater than symbol. And it's a 
illogical. 49 is not greater than 50. But the point we're making with that poster, which I did with a neighbor, is that the, uh, who's an illustrator and graphic artist, the, the occupying, uh, I'm going to spoil more of the book here, the occupying authorities in Hawaii are trying to convince the local population that they are better off after an invasion. And the insurgency is dedicated to stopping that. The, the poster there is sort of making this case that, somewhat clumsily, which is the point, that the, the occupation will result literally in a safer homeland, both for America, but also for, for the islands. And the insurgency is dedicated to doing everything from, that they can to, to, to wreak havoc. And, and you know, when we talk about counterinsurgency, when we talk about technology, we often look at it from that counterinsurgency perspective, not from an insurgency perspective. And one of the things that the book allowed us to do was to step back and say, what technologies would be useful if we were insurgents in Hawaii trying to repel an occupying force to kind of ex, 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 you know, count, uh, impose such a cost that it was an untenable position. I just want to add one thing. It, it points to, it's both a, a real-world question of, and this was a, a difficult but, but real conversation, of what have our soldiers learned from the last 15 years of fighting in, in the sandbox? Not how to fight insurgents, but what have we picked up from the other side? Not out of respecting them, but what are the tools, the tricks of the trade? And it also points to, you know, you made the joke about the surfing, but one of the most important tools of an insurgent today, but also in the future, is a GoPro. It's the ability to document what you're doing, tell your own story, and then go against that, that narrative that the other side is putting out there. Even if they're more powerful, if you get your story out, you've just shifted it. Well, talk about that a little, because that goes to this question of imagining a culture of America in a time of war. Your insurgents do put up a lot of videos of their operations. How, how, how did you imagine that playing out kind of at home? And I mean, that, that's the sort of, uh, by the way, the, the insurgent graffiti is by Sam Cole, uh, same last name because he's my brother, who's a director. But he came up uh, not only with the production of this whole exhibition, so thank you, Sam, but also with that great uh, insurgent logo that he uh, penned up on the, uh, the other poster. The, the value of getting an insurgent video to the mainland of the US was, was really an interesting one to play with because we started thinking, you know, if you are in the capital of our new China and you're trying to get the US to simply accept that it's lost its 50th state, that it's lost Hawaii, it's back down to 49, how do you do that? How do you both strangle the mainland but also get them to accept that the status quo is now this new, this new order? And the insurgency is a very visceral reminder that, that American, some Americans won't give up. But others in this context aren't sure whether the future is with, with China to run the Pacific and we kind of leave in our, live in our isolationist uh, bubble in the mainland, or if it is to retake what we believe to be ours as a nation. There's, there's a couple really fun things to play with that. And in, in, in one way, that's mirroring the problems that we had in Iraq with the CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority, which basically tried to do the same in Iraq and flailed at it. So, you know, let's realize we did it in the real world and did it poorly. The, the second is it points to another difference between conflict today and tomorrow, which is the ubiquity of sensors, which is a wonky way of saying everybody's got cameras. And so one of the opening scenes of the book is basically someone with their cell phone 
taping the, the start of the war and popping it up online before the president even realizes the war's begun. And that sounds weird, crazy, except, oh, by the way, the bin Laden raid was live tweeted. Uh, the Russian moves into Crimea were being talked about online before NATO even knew that it, it had played out. And um, you know, the, the last thing I would say is it might be useful kind of to talk about the, the art project because I think it's a really neat way of in, envisioning, you know, it, it, it wasn't just friends and family, but it, it's, it was a group of professional um, artists, visual artists, people uh, from creative advertising backgrounds, and we basically asked them to envision what might be the art of World War III, and you can see the different visions they brought to it, and, and it both touches on, um, I would argue, kind of you know, echoes back to some of the World War II propaganda, but also has these modern flourishes, you know, everything from the advertising people coming up with like a logo to um, some of it, you know, it may be seemingly about World War III, but you can see it touches on the surveillance debate today. So it was a pretty neat exercise. It was a lot of fun for us. And there's another question. Well, you know, posters seem so quaint, right? The, uh, you know, uh, keep calm and carry on being one that we've seen develop into a meme. But if you think about, to your point about cyber warfare and the societal impacts on it, imagine the connectivity we take for granted. You know, there's no more pop-up ads when your internet doesn't work. You know, the value of an actual poster that's glued or, or, or hung on the side of a building or on a billboard will actually be greater in that kind of a context. Let me ask you a real layperson's question about the Hawaii aspect of the plot. Obviously, Hawaii is a state, so it's infinitely valuable. Um, and obviously, there's historical resonances. But in your sort of strategic vision, is Hawaii strategically important to China in some way that, or is it just that it's a part of the US and an integral part of the US? Um, is, is it still like 100 years ago where you had to refuel ships? There, or what, why, why Hawaii? So, you know, again, the, the book is, it's at the end of the day, fiction. We are not saying that, you know, there's forces poised to seize Hawaii. It's, it's a, plays out in the book. Um, there are very interesting things, however, in the real world, which we document in the book of, for example, Chinese military officers um, typically talking about their claims. It, previously, it's been on the, the first and second island chain. Um, I got to Guam, like The distance, out, you know, first Taiwan, then, then we've, there's recent been people talking about the third island chain. And, and more importantly, when you take a broader view of history, um, our history in, in Hawaii, for example, is uh, not as long as we might think. Um, but the point is not to say this might happen. Um, it's more that if you were planning out um, how to replay Pearl Harbor better, learning the lessons, there's certain things you might do to, it's a, it's a hub. On either side. <laughs> um, there's a, it's a hub of, uh, you know, essentially, we have a very centralized command and control, command and control structure that's, hubbed in Hawaii, and so we, we play with that. But you know, again, it's not the only setting in the book. Um, you, know, you ride along in a, uh, the USS Zumwalt, which is, seems like a stealthy, um, futuristic battleship. It's building in Maine right now to, um, as you mentioned, Silicon Valley to uh, air combat. And you know, what would it be like to be in a, a modern-day dogfight, both with these fifth-generation um, jet fighters but also, you know, as drones are flying too. And again, that seems sci-fi, that is the Air Force plan for it. And you know, the, 
the, the Pacific Ocean covers a third of the Earth, and, and actual real estate matters. You know, this is why China has devoted a lot of diplomatic and actual resources to making small islands out of, uh, out of uh, essentially reefs. Other nations are doing this too, and it's been going on for a few years. And China's putting increasing strategic value on these for everything from landing aircraft to refueling stations. You know, uh, logistics matter with distances like that, that you know, ships do need to take on fuel and such. Uh, so you really have to think about the value of being able to control a part of the Earth as large as the Pacific in a meaningful way. A place like Hawaii has a lot of relevance in a very practical sense. Um, you also, the novel also takes us at one point to Greenland. Um, and this is a, a part of it I really like. Um, there's some uh, climate change plot twists as well involving the emergence of... Spoiler, the Earth gets warmer. Spoiler, the Earth gets warmer. And, um, I question that science. Um. Um, there's the emergence of an independent Greenland, um, which plays, I won't say what role, but a role at a crucial moment. Um, talk a little bit about that. Do you think that every military strategist needs to be thinking about climate change now? And are they? And where are the... Is it, is, and is the thinking about climate change, is it things like there might be a drought in Syria and that's going to cause disorder, or in this place um, there's going to be a crop failure, or is it also things like really the shape of the world changing? Um, you talk about new sea routes and things like that. And is that conversation taking place in military planning circles? So, so the Greenland part was um, drawn from, again, railroad meetings I was able to meet with uh, representatives, um, uh, essentially, they're, they're in the Danish parliament, but from Greenland. And, you know, there's some really, in, there is a, um, an independence movement there, but it doesn't see much of a future for itself as long as NATO is in being, dot, dot, dot. But um, if uh, Greenland were to become independent, essentially it would be an Arctic version of the Gulf states. It would immediately become, uh, I believe the data, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on stage, I was about to say, don't hold me to this, but I believe the data be the third richest nation in the world by per capita GDP because it's basically sitting on some amazing energy and mineral finds, except it's stuck to Denmark, which used to see it as this burden um, that now is realizing the value. So again, you know, you've got these real world issues there. More broadly, you know, to your question, um, I think uh, actually the national security establishment has been way more progressive on recognizing the impact of climate change as this, um, it's not the immediate, it's not the direct effect, it's the way it's changing the world and everything, as you mentioned, from changing sea routes and what does that mean for the Arctic to open up and it's creating a, a great game up there where the Russians, us, the Canadians, have all started to build military forces designed for basically competing there to, you know, as you mentioned also, the, the, the Syrian conflict among the many underlying causes of it is a lot of people think this drought that was spurred on by climate change. So I think they've, if you read the U.S. military documents, they're, um, well, it's not that hard. They're certainly well ahead of where Congress is at it. Um, but, and, and hopefully that, that forces a, a better conversation about it's, it. It's been depoliticized in that regard. It's, yeah. it's a, such a pressing national security issue that you can't really talk about the future of warfare without talking about climate change. All right, I think we're going to... Um, just one quick question, then we'll open it up to everybody. Um, you know, when it, this goes back to sort of the premise again. This is not... Um, you mentioned that there's a possibility of war that starts as an accident, South China Sea, or one that's a war of choice. 
you made this a war of choice for China. Um, why? Do you think that that is the scary thing? I think you need to look at a question like that from a Chinese perspective, that President Xi Jinping has a very strong ambition to, to follow through on a Chinese dream, which is part of a larger arc that restores China to a greatness that it feels like is its due. And the Russians have a similar perspective on the US. You know, the, the world sort of revolves around us in this unipolar sense right now. You know, China's GDP is growing, and we're going to see that shift to a more bipolar status, and maybe there already. The point being, the international institutions that China sees as governing things like uh, trade, governing laws of the sea, things that uh, impose boundaries upon them and uh, that they don't want to follow. If you were to change those rules quickly, you know, how would you really short, sharp shock to our uh, kind of phraseology earlier to the global order? What would it take? And I think that's in the construct that a war might seem like, I don't mean to say this in a good way, but a good idea to a risk worth taking for, for, our, for our leaders of a country like that in our fictional world. It's also because... Um, we like to pat ourselves on the back and assume that it could only start through such an accident. And um, we, we undertake measures to avoid those kind of accidents. Let's um, you know, develop a, a, a red line between us, a red, tele red telephone line, just like we had with the Soviets and the like. And the reality is when you look at conflicts, they mostly start by choice. And um, that's you know, the choice maybe something that you've thought about for a long period of time, or to go almost exactly 100 years back, you have people basically saying, there's no way we would ever go to war. Um, Andrew Carnegie you know, dedicates the, the Peace Palace saying that you know, the end of war is at hand. And then this minor, in, you know, a, a, a guy gets killed in Sarajevo. It's barely remarked upon in the newspapers of the day and the diaries of the, the foreign ministers. But then over the course of a couple of months, this Syria Avra moment becomes a logic that they all see in going to war. And so again, you know, that's, a, that's a, the wonky explanation. The fiction writer explanation is it, it seemed, frankly, kind of too easy to be like, you know, oh, accidental war, war begins. Okay, you know, instead we can set up a, a way for where characters make choices that make sense to them. And of course, um, like in the real world, sometimes you, you choose things that may not be the best for you. Because then it opens up these larger questions of destiny you know, for, for nations, and I think that's very much at work with China, but also for the protagonists and the villains of, of, our, of, our, of our book. And I think those are themes that when you read and enjoy Ghost Fleet, you'll see run through because those are, uh, you know, the, the wartime experience really unleashes that both within nations but also within individuals. We're out of time, but I just want to thank everybody for these great questions and being so attentive and, and being great. So thank you all. For thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.